Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Nebraska again this week. And all I remember is that it was the corn state because I remember corn and Nebraska. But I did learn some new things about Nebraska while doing my story this week, too. So, Oh, good. So you're getting an education on Nebraska as we as we visited this the Cornhusker state. Everything has to do with railroads. That's just what I keep coming back to. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like that was how a lot of folks kind of came to Nebraska and how we got goods back and forth across the country. True. I've still never ridden on a train and I want to so bad. Interesting. Never like an Amtrak or a passenger train? Nope. It could be exciting. I've never actually been in a taxi or a limo either. I can't remember if I've been in a limo. I've definitely been in taxis. Closest thing that I've been in is an Uber, so. (laughs) (laughs) And that was only like twice because I'm afraid of being murdered because of this podcast. It ruins you, doesn't it? It does. Well, Eden, to further your education about Nebraska, I have some uh, weird state laws, which I think you'll get a kick out of. Awesome. I need to pick me up. Let's do this. <laughs> so last week we learned that Nebraska, even though it's landlocked, has a Navy. Yeah, which is just fucking weird. Right. But apparently it's also illegal to fish for whales there. Just like Oklahoma, whaling is outlawed. <laughs> what? It's wh- Why? I mean, I love it, but why? And what is that doing to your lipstick supply? (laughs) They don't need lipstick in Nebraska. They have fresh corn-fed faces. And trains. And trains. I'm surprised Atlas Shrugged was not taking place in Nebraska. (laughs) Uh, Another weird law that kind of makes me sad about Nebraska, though, is that in the city of Lee, you cannot purchase donut holes. It's illegal to sell donut holes... And you could actually get in trouble with the law if you try to convince somebody to sell you the leftover holes for when they make donuts. That is very weird. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is wrong because, as Tori Amos says, you never gain weight from a donut hole. Preach. They also have some interesting laws regarding marriage, like a lot of states. According to Nebraska law, fiancés must be at least 17 years old and they must, quote, not be afflicted with a venereal disease. So in particular, gonorrhea is called out in the state statute. Okay. Well, I mean, at least it's one of the get readable ones. I suppose nowadays. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. Cause I know like a lot of states would do blood tests, you know, you have to yes. do the blood tests and all that stuff, but it's like, Oh, they're for real. Like you don't pass your blood test. You can't get married because you have a venereal disease. And that actually happened to someone I read about in an article while back they were like long lost uh like brother and sister that had been <gasps> adopted out and they did the blood test and they found out they're related. That's some soap opera shit. That is some soap opera shit right there. Let's see. Oh, this is kind of fun. And I wish this law was something that was around when I was a uh, preteen girl. But in Nebraska, it's illegal for a mother to give her daughter a perm without a state license. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I, I was the victim of a terrible spiral perm once. There's a lot of home hair accidents that happen when mothers or fathers or whoever get a little bit overzealous and they're just like, you're going to be so beautiful. Oh, what did I do? To be fair, I think I was kind of like, I want to do a spiral perm, mom. And she's like, okay, you know, your hair's fine and curly, right? I'm like, sure. <laughs> oh, God. So you, you were the, uh, you kind of like egged it on a bit. Yeah, you know, you know, at the end of uh, Legally Blonde, where she's like interviewing. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, Linda Cardellini's character. I'm like, that's pretty much how my hair looked in like eighth grade. Oh, man, that's a lot of curls. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough. Yeah, I just actually quoted that movie the other day. <laughs> I said, Donna stomp your little last season Prada shoes at me, honey. <laughs> you know, he did leave a, a share tape in the pool house once. <laughs> I forgot about that part. I love that movie. It's so stupid, but it's good. Let's see what else I brought Nebraska. Okay. Having false teeth created from leather is illegal, but dead people's teeth is just fine. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know that I want some dead people teeth in my mouth, but I leather. Yeah. Leather. I was like, who does that? Uh, who? Yeah. That's really, really weird. So I did look into a little bit more to see if this is actually a thing that people make fake teeth out of leather. And I couldn't tell either way, but I did discover some really disturbing facts about the false te- history of false teeth. Uh, like, have you ever heard of Waterloo teeth, Eden? I have not. Does it have something to do with uh, Napoleon? It does. So the Battle of Waterloo was pretty devastating. Over 50,000 young men died. And unlike the typical teeth that would be harvested from dead people to make dentures, which are often older people or teeth not in the best condition, the uh, dead at Waterloo had nice, healthy young people teeth. So they were harvested to make dentures. And it actually became a trend in Great Britain to get yourself a set of Waterloo teeth. I knew you were going to say that too. And (laughs) I just, I didn't want to believe it, but it's true. Yeah, it's so creepy. The only like false teeth fact that I know is that the whole thing about Washington and his wooden teeth was not true. And it was actually like random like animal bone teeth, like ivory from like elephant tusks and stuff like that. I've heard ivory and I've also heard, again, human teeth for Washington. Okay. I haven't heard Possibly that Possibly from people he enslaved. So it all that depends on sense. what source you read. Yeah. Yeah. On a lighter note, speaking of things around your mouth region, I suppose – uh, barbers are forbidden from eating onions between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. in Nebraska. I'm assuming so they don't have horrendous breath while they're giving you a shave and a haircut. I would assume so, but also I feel really bad for them because I love onions. I know. It's a problem. It's a problem. Sometimes I'll make lunch for, for myself and my wife, and I'm like, here you go. And she's like, why are there so many onions on it? I'm like, they're so tasty. She's like, it's I delicious. can't taste anything but onion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, two two more facts for you, Eden, which I think are just weird, and I've never heard of this, but in Nebraska, only doctors can sell condoms. What? Yeah, that's according to state law. I don't think it's something that actually happens in practice, but that is a law on the books in Nebraska. That is very strange. I agree. I agree. And then last but certainly not least, in bars in Nebraska, if the bar wants to sell beer – they're unable to do so unless they also have a pot of soup going that they can also sell. So I guess it's sort of like don't drink on an empty stomach. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I would totally like do like a beer and soup special. To I know get customers that, in. I know that sounds delicious, right? I can recall some some great clam chowder and delicious beer I had at a little brewery in Portland, Maine. Awesome. But yeah. So those are my weird laws for Nebraska. I think they definitely are some of the weirder ones we've come across recently. They were pretty weird. I will I will say that. I did enjoy them. And I'm just still wondering what the fuck is up with all the whale hunting in places with no water. 
I know. I'm like, is this like a leftover political statement from like the 1890s or something? Probably. It's some old law that's on the books that they never got rid of. Probably something that was like nationally made. And then, you know, it was left up to states and they're just like, let's just keep it. Who cares? (laughs) Uh, So I guess I can move on to my, my story if you'd like. Yes, please. So I was pretty excited to tell you this story. I've been sitting on it since we did the Iowa episodes uh, because it takes place in Omaha. And as you know, Omaha and Council Bluff, Iowa are really close. They're basically like sister cities kind of. Okay. Um, And initially it came up in my searches for true crime in Iowa, but most of the story takes place in Nebraska. So I decided to save it until we got to Nebraska. Oh, like what happened with me and the bloody benders. Exactly, exactly. So, like I said, we're going back to Omaha, which is the largest city in Nebraska. And Roadsters, if you've already been through our Nebraska Part 1 episode, you should be pretty familiar with the basic facts about this Midwestern city. So before I tell you another truly gruesome and horrifying story from The Big O, I figured I'd share some, some of the delightfully unique experiences you could have while in Omaha. So first... Did you know you can visit the largest indoor desert and indoor rainforest in the world right in Omaha? I did not know that. That's pretty cool. I would do both of those things. Yeah, it's super cool. It's at the Henry Dorley Zoo and Museum, which is consistently ranked as one of the best zoos in America. They have this place called the Desert Dome, which spans 84,000 square feet on two different levels and features a mix of desert plants and animals from all over the world. The zoo also has the largest indoor rainforest called the Lide or Lidey, I think it's Lide Rainforest, a 80 foot tall, one and a half acre interactive rainforest full of monkeys and tamers and macaws and pygmy hippos, Eden, baby tiny pygmy hippos. Oh, little baby hippos. I feel like those are probably the safest hippos because aren't hippos like notoriously like vicious and will gobble you up if you get in its way. They are very territorial. Yes. Mm. I wonder if pygmy hippos are like that too. People are always just like, well, they only eat plants, so they can't be that bad. They have flat teeth. I'm like, no, they're assholes. Don't go near them. I'm like, they're also ginormous. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So once you get your full of cuddly animals, you can also check out another large attraction that you can only see in Omaha. And that is the world's largest coffee pot. Okay. I'm intrigued. Good. So it's not actually a coffee pot per se, but it's the Sap Brothers coffee pot water tower that's built in the style to look like an old-fashioned percolator. Okay, interesting. But here's the best part. The water tower doesn't just look like an overgrown version of your grandma's percolator. It also mimics the steam and flashing lights of a standard percolator, too. What? They really went all out. Okay. I know. That's so cool. Okay. So... Say you're looking for a truly unique dining experience in Omaha, then I recommend that you head to Brother Sebastian's Steakhouse. Now, bear with me here. The steakhouse is inspired by the Spanish monasteries that are spread throughout California, and it's not quite your traditional steakhouse. It's almost a theme restaurant. No, it is a theme restaurant. It features cozy booths, stained glass windows, Walls of books like a monastery library, a huge crackling fireplace, and all of the servers are dressed as friendly merry monks. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. I also like me some merry monks. I know. Merry monks is a delicious beer. And probably no one outside of PA knows about merry monks, but that's okay. 
Hot tip. Hot tip, listeners. <laughs> yes. If you're ever in Easton, go to their to the Weyerbacher Brewery and get yourself some Merry Monks. It's delicious. Now, I'm almost curious if they have Merry Monks at Brother Sebastian's. If not, I should shoot them an email and let them know. Yes, absolutely. Not only is the theme delightful at Brother Sebastian's Steakhouse, but their beef is really good, too. It was named one of the best steaks in Omaha repeatedly since they first opened in 1977. Okay, that sounds good to me. I like some steak. I know. I figured you'd be all about that. I oh, like yes. that's like totally I'm like I want to that's on my list now for visiting Omaha. And then because I love animals, I know you do too, Eden. I found another delightful place where you can enjoy some of the local wildlife this time. The recommendation I got was stopping by the historic Alpine Inn, which is home to about 50 raccoons who like to just hang out and chill there. I love raccoons, except when they're on my roof. Oh, if you love raccoons, then I totally recommend checking out the Alpine Inn Home of the Wildlife page on Facebook. They post tons of cute videos and cute pictures of their beloved trash pandas. So I kind of spent a little probably too much time that I should have been writing, zooming through all of their pictures and videos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, now that we've had some delightful chat about cute animals and delicious foods. I think it's time to get to the reason why you're really here, which is some true crime goodness. Yes, please. Now, while the experiences we chatted about, except for the little baby birds at Eden's house are available in Omaha. um, I don't know if the folks in my story ever got the opportunity to enjoy a fine steak at brother Sebastian's or visit the zoo and aquarium. But I do know that everything in our story started when 33-year-old Dave Krupa moved to Omaha in 2012 for a fresh start. He had recently taken a job in an auto repair shop in the city after ending a long-term relationship with his girlfriend, Amy Flora. Dave and Amy had been together for several years, and they actually shared two young daughters. They had parted amicably and still co-parented their kids. But after several months in Omaha, Dave decided to tiptoe back into the dating pool. According to an interview with ABC News, he, quote, felt pretty rusty, so internet dating was the way to go, end quote. And he signed up for a few dating sites like you do. Internet dating is never the way to go. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe maybe Omaha doesn't have a thriving single scene. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? Dave ended up meeting a couple women right away. And one of them was a single mom named Shanna Elizabeth Goyler. Nicknamed Liz, she had two kids who were about the same age as Dave's daughter. So they started chatting and agreed to go on a date. After a couple dates, their relationship became sexual. And according to Dave, he made it clear that he wasn't looking for anything too serious since he had just gotten out of a long-term relationship. And Liz agreed to keep things casual, even though she was kind of disappointed. About six months later, Dave met another woman. Her name was Carrie Farver. She had come into the auto shop where he worked to get some routine maintenance performed on her Ford Explorer. According to Dave, quote, when we looked at each other, there was a little spark. And it wasn't from the Ford? (laughs) It wasn't from the Ford, surprisingly. (laughs) She was showing me something inside the vehicle, and we were standing there, and we were very close, and there was some tension, end quote. Okay. Steamy. I know. Tension. So he asked her out. They have a fantastic first date, and Dave invites Carrie back to his place. After spending the night together, Carrie tells him that she didn't really want to get too serious before Dave himself could broach the subject the next morning. 
he felt like he hit the jackpot. He was this attractive woman that he got along with. He wasn't looking for anything serious, just wanted to have a good time. And so did he. Honestly, I can't say I blame him. By most accounts, Carrie was smart, warm, friendly, and she just had one of those infectious laughs that when you hear it, you can't help but smile and laugh yourself. Oh, that, that's Brittany Murphy for me. Yeah, for sure. Every time I hear sure. her laugh, I have to laugh too. I love it. <laughs> uh, Carrie was also a single mom to a teenage son, and she had recently landed a job as a computer programmer at a company in Omaha. And she was commuting almost an hour from her home in Macedonia, Iowa. After planning to see each other again, Carrie left Dave's apartment to head home. In the hallway, she passed Liz, who was stopping by Dave's apartment on a whim to grab a few things she'd left there. And this brief encounter would kick off a series of escalating violence. In the fall of 2012, Carrie began working on a big project for work that required late nights several days a week at her office. Since her company was located very close to Dave's apartment, he offered to let her stay with him so that she didn't have to commute back to Iowa late at night. Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah. You can still keep it casual and have sleepovers. You know, who doesn't love an adult sleepover during the week? Exactly. On November 13th, 2012, Dave left for work, kissed Carrie goodbye, and he told her that he would see her later that evening for dinner. Later that day, Carrie sent Dave a text message saying that she really wanted to move in together. Dave was a little surprised, maybe a little taken aback, because they'd already talked about moving in together when she started working on this big project, and they were both like, no, this is a little too soon for us, and we're just casually dating anyway. Because that's a pretty serious commitment. Yeah, for sure. Especially when, like, she owns a house in Iowa, and just it just seems a little fast, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he texts back, and he says, I'm not really interested in moving in with you, and Carrie immediately responds with this message. Fine. I hate you. I'm dating someone else. I don't want to see you anymore. Go away. Oh, so she's a two-year-old about it. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I understand where you could definitely be hurt from someone saying that. I completely get that. But you don't just go off and, I don't know, people need to control their fucking tempers. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Carrie was gone when Dave got home from work that day. And about two days passed before he heard anything from her. And she started off by sending him a profanity-riddled text message telling him, I hate you, you've ruined my life, you're a terrible person, stuff like that. You know, typical ex-talk. I don't even send that to exes who have actually ruined my life and who I actually (laughs) hate. Exactly. It's just, again, like to your point, super petty and immature. Now, these messages continue over the next couple days. And all Dave can think to himself is like, wow, I so just dodged a bullet with this woman. And again... I can't say I blame Dave for thinking that. But oddly, he wasn't the only one receiving strange messages from Carrie. Nancy Rainey, Carrie's mother, also started to receive text messages from Carrie saying that she was quitting her job at Omaha in favor of a new job in Kansas. This news surprised Nancy since she knew her daughter was very happy with her programming job in Omaha. And it also worried her. In Carrie's early 20s, a few years after she had given birth to her son, Max, she was diagnosed with depression. Okay. According to Nancy, Carrie was eventually diagnosed as bipolar and put on medication. Makes sense. This is definitely, that seems like a bipolar response. Mm -hmm. Uh, To quote Nancy, she said, uh, she had been seeing therapists and was on medication. There had been a couple times when she would stop taking the medication because she would say things like, mom, I'm just feeling so numb, end quote. And I think that's something that a lot of folks who are bipolar have with some of the medications, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I felt that way on medication before where it's just like, well, there's nothing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't like being depressed and crazy, but I also don't want to feel nothing. Exactly. That's a very common complaint, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Good for Carrie, though, because apparently after several years, by 2012, she had been managing her well-being and mental health for several years without any incidents. She was doing great, actually, according to her mother. Well, that's good. After Nancy got these text messages saying that her daughter had ran, like erratically decided to move to Kansas to take a new job, she tried to get a hold of her. She tried to call her. The calls always went to voicemail. So she texted her and what she got back were more and more intense and angry text messages to the point where the text messaged messages would call Nancy a terrible mother, saying that she was controlling and then vowing never to see her ever again. Wow. Okay. Nancy, understandably, was extremely worried. So she contacted the police. Now, when she was talking to the police, there's. They were a little like, well, you know, because she's bipolar, she might have gone off her medication, so that could explain her erratic behavior, but we'll look into it. When the police looked into it, they did discover that Carrie actually hadn't been at work in Omaha since November 12th, and the only contact that anyone had had with her was via text message or email. Meanwhile, Dave was receiving more and more text messages and now, of course, emails from Carrie. The tone of the harassing messages started to become really threatening and downright stalkerly. One message said, quote, I will do what I can to make you suffer. Oh, that's never good. Yeah. And others said, we belong together, Dave. Just like that Mariah Carey song. So according to Dave, he felt like he was being stalked. Uh, Quote, on one specific occasion, I was sitting on my lazy boy with my feet up watching TV, trying to relax. It was nighttime, and I get this text message saying, I see you. You're sitting in your chair with your feet propped up wearing a blue shirt. Oh. And those things were all true. No. <laughs> right? Like, what the hell? Okay, no. She is straight out of a Melissa Etheridge song. <laughs> She's like straight out of Fatal Attraction. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't worry. Dave didn't have any pets. So all I'm hearing is Melissa Etheridge playing in my head. I know you're home. You left the light on. (laughs) So this situation further escalates with Liz Goyler. She's still dating Dave. And she also starts to receive harassing messages from Carrie. And then Liz's garage is vandalized. Someone had graffitied whore from Dave and spray paint on the door. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. I did not ask you to decorate. Thank you very much. But no, thank you. (laughs) It's so urban. (laughs) As the weeks passed, Carrie was still sending messages, but hadn't actually shown up at any family events or holidays. She even missed her own son's 15th birthday and her father's funeral. Ooh. Yeah. Her mother, Nancy, knew something was very, very wrong. She loved her son and would never, ever not show up for his birthday, no matter how erratic she was behaving. Soon enough, too, her son, 15-year-old Max, started receiving messages as well, saying things like, I'm sorry I wasn't a better mother, and hang in there, little man. Now, the biggest thing that stuck out to Nancy about the messages she received and the ones that Max received was that there was all kinds of grammatical spelling and punctuation errors. This is so out of character for her daughter, who is, quote, a stickler for punctuation and spelling. 
I feel like that is totally how you know I'm not texting you because I will actually use proper punctuation as best I can when I text. Me too. I proper know. punctuation. I spell out the word okay. I know. Like it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I enjoy texting with you, Eden. <laughs> I never have to guess what things mean. Exactly. I'm not like letter C space letter U space N space number two space min happy face. <laughs> Fire truck emoji, eggplant, fried shrimp. What does this mean? It means I want some hot and spicy eggplant shrimp. I I don't know. <laughs> By January 2013, about two months since this campaign of harassment from Carrie started, Dave notices that her Ford Explorer was parked near his apartment building. He knew he knew it was her car because he had, you know, seen it at the shop, done work on it. And so he reported the vehicle to the Omaha Police Department. The police searched the car, and they weren't able to find anything suspicious or any fingerprints even, except for a single fingerprint on a mint container. It didn't match Carrie or anyone. It didn't match Carrie or anyone in the FBI's national database. So as the weeks turned to months, Carrie still has not turned up in person or called her family. Then in April 2013, a man contacts Nancy, her mother, saying that he had seen Carrie at a homeless shelter and that she wanted Nancy to pick her up. So, of course, Nancy is overjoyed and, like, races to the shelter. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, on the way, she contacts police investigators and they decide to meet her there. When all of them arrive at the shelter, they learn that it was a false flag and that Carrie had never actually uh. been there. No. And all that way that her mom had to go. That sucks. According to Nancy, she said, quote, it was such a letdown. I was just devastated. I was getting this rising in my hopes and then it was dashed again. I knew somebody was playing games here, end quote. Meanwhile, of course, Carrie's still harassing Dave and Liz. They were receiving hundreds of deranged text messages and emails each week. It was a pretty common occurrence for the dating couple to suddenly have their phones blow up with messages when they sat down to watch TV or enjoy dinner. Then the tones of the messages started to change and they started becoming more and more violent. Dave got an email from Carrie threatening Liz. It included a picture of a woman tied up in the trunk of a car and Dave panicked and called Liz only to discover that she was fine. Shortly afterwards, he received a link from Carrie, that was to a fake obituary that she had made for Liz. Jesus Christ. I know. I know. That's why I'm like, you're good. This story is nuts, dude. Like, insane. Wow. Okay. She needs help. She needs a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Someone better fucking find her quick. Then, one of the most horrible parts of the story happened. In August of 2013, Liz's home caught fire. And this house fire killed her two dogs, her cat, and her pet snake. Oh, no. Okay, that's the most horrible thing that you could have told me mm-hmm. because the pets died. I know. That's like so awful. Fire investigators believe that it was arson. And Liz told investigators that she suspected that Carrie Farver was the culprit considering all of the threatening messages she's received from her. Uh, that would be my logical choice too. Mm-hmm. Terrified that Carrie would continue to make good on her violent threats, Dave purchased a 9mm Smith & Wesson pistol for protection and especially, he was especially nervous, too, because at this time, his ex-girlfriend and mother of his children, Amy Flora, had started to receive messages from Carrie, too. Now, the odd thing is that Dave would eventually report that this pistol had gone missing in the summer of 2015. 
As the months passed, Carrie continued to bombard Dave and Liz and Amy with messages, and Dave suspected her of vandalizing the auto shop where he worked and of throwing a brick through his apartment window when a female friend from out of town was staying with him. Okay, yeah, she is completely psycho. She has gone off the deep end. Again, somebody come get her and take her away because, yeah, she needs help, Mm -hmm. and this does not work for anyone. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Carrie's mother, Nancy, is continuing to reach out to police to check on updates for her daughter. But at this point, no one has seen Carrie in person for two and a half years. Two Council Bluff, Iowa detectives, Ryan Avis and Jim Dottie, heard about the case and were intrigued enough to volunteer to take over. Since Nancy was convinced that something awful had happened to her daughter, and Dave was convinced that Carrie was still out there making his life a living hell, The detectives decided to work the case from both those angles. Dottie working on the case like something awful had happened to Carrie and Avis working on it like she was out there terrorizing people. My bet is on the latter. (laughs) As they dug through the original case file, they noticed two red flags. There wasn't any activity on Carrie's bank account or credit cards and the targeted harassment of Liz Goyler whom didn't appear to have been a part of Carrie's life up until she dropped out of sight. So the detectives decided to reach out to the digital forensic administrator, Anthony Cava, who was part of their office. They shared the 2013 phone data dump from Dave and Liz's devices that was included in the original case file. According to Cava, it became clear very quickly that someone was impersonating Carrie. Quote, Carrie, or the imposter who is pretending to be Carrie, sent Dave about 15,000 emails over a three-year span. Holy crap. It might have been upwards of 25,000 or 50,000 texts in all. Whoever was pretending to be Carrie got more and more sophisticated in what they were doing to try to hide their IP address, to hide their real identity, end quote. So they think this is someone pretending to be Carrie now? Yes. At this point, they think it is because no activity on her bank accounts implies that she isn't out there anywhere, that she might actually be dead or imprisoned or something. True, but you can also just go completely... Off the grid. Yeah. Yeah, so that's true. So there is still a possibility. I had the weirdest thought. I'm like, what if she got a makeover, is now calling herself Liz, and she's sending all these threatening things just to fuck with him? I mean... That would be interesting, but Dave was already dating Liz for six months before he met Carrie. Oh, okay, cool. So, then we're good. Yeah, we're good. I just wanted to make sure this wasn't going to be some days of our lives shit. <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. It's it's a nutty story, but it's not quite that nutty. Um, yeah, so I I, have, I love those numbers that, that Anthony Cava listed in, in one of the interviews I read where it's just – it tells you the gravity of like how many messages – and like emails they're getting, like sending like 50,000 emails or messages, text messages to somebody. Like, holy Christ. So as they dug deeper into the data, they just started to discover some pretty damning items in Liz's data. They found a picture of Carrie's Ford Explorer taken about a month before Dave reported the vehicle to police on Liz's phone. They were able to determine that the photo of the tied up woman in the car trunk that Dave received via email was also taken by Liz's phone. And Liz's call records showed that she had called Carrie six times using the star six, seven prefix to disguise her number. Ooh. Yep. All of this is very odd behavior for someone who barely knew Carrie. Yeah. That's real weird. After determining based on this 
information that Liz Goyler was a solid person of interest in Carrie's disappearance, they decided to test the fingerprint from the mint container that they found in Carrie's Ford Explorer against Liz's fingerprints. And they got a match. The detectives also interviewed Nancy Rainey, who shared a series of messages she had received just after her daughter had disappeared. The messages from Carrie said that she had sold all of her furniture and that Nancy should let the buyer into her house to collect it. This conversation included an image of a check that was made out to Carrie, but signed by one Shanna Goyler, a.k.a. Liz's legal name. What? Yes. Then, in December of 2015, Liz filed a harassment complaint against Dave's ex-girlfriend, Amy Flora. Detectives Avis and Dottie jumped on this complaint and went to interview her, hoping that they could get the final pieces of evidence they needed to make an arrest in Carrie's disappearance. And I'll tell you what, dude, these detectives hit pay dirt. Oh, okay. Now I'm really intrigued. During the interview, Liz stated that she thought it was Amy who had pretended to be Carrie this whole time. And that she thought that Amy had stolen Dave's 9mm Smith & Wesson pistol. According to Avis, quote, she realized that she probably shouldn't have known any details about the gun. And then any further questions I asked her about the gun, she was suddenly very vague, end quote. Ooh, okay. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Mm -hmm. When he asked Liz if she was willing to turn over the content of her phone, she agreed, much to Avis's surprise. (laughs) So she's like, no, yeah, I'll totally sign that consent form. Don't worry about it. The investigators begin to review the content of her phone. And the next day, Liz calls 911 to report that she had been shot while walking alone at night in a nearby park. Okay. At first, she says she wasn't sure who shot her. Then she changed her story, saying that she thought it was Amy Flora. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. The police were like, um, okay, weird that you just mentioned that you thought Amy stole that gun and then the next day she shot you with it. Wow, what a coincidence, Liz. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> so the police did a quick interview with Amy, who had an alibi, and they immediately cleared her. But they didn't tell Liz this. According to De- Detective Avis, the police were pretty convinced that Liz had shot herself in an attempt to frame Amy. Meanwhile, the data from Liz's phone turned up that she had registered 30 emails in Carrie Farver's name and that she used an app that let her schedule the sending of emails and text messages for future times. So this can explain how Dave was receiving messages from quote unquote Carrie while spending time with Liz, who we could very clearly see wasn't using her phone or sending any text messages. All in all, police estimate that Liz spent about 40 to 50 hours a week impersonating Carrie. That's a full-time job. Yes, it is. Like, this bitch is nuts. What is wrong with her? Oh, but it gets better, Eden. How? Oh, the only way it can. When a criminal is this, quote-unquote, crazy, there's so little sophistication. So once you start kind of, like, cracking and poking around the edges, everything kind of tumbles like a house of cards. This is some freaking Kim Rico bullshit. Yes, I would say that I would put Liz Goyler forward as uh, the 2021 Kim Rico award-winning murderer. Oh, hell yes. Now, after detectives decided to go back and interview Liz a second time, just to flesh out some more details, Liz is upset. She's like pushing them to investigate Amy Flora. And they come back to Liz with a plan. And the idea is to snare Liz once and for all with this plan. 
Since she doesn't seem to realize that she's a suspect in any way, shape, or form, the detectives tell her that they need Amy to incriminate herself. I'm sorry. Hold up a second. How does she not know she's a suspect? She was questioned by the police. Her phone was taken. She well, Is she, she blonde? No, she's not. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. She volunteered to give the police her phone, and she was being interviewed by the police on the pretense of her being shot by Amy. Keep that in mind. Oh, okay. This second interview is only about two weeks after Liz was, quote unquote, shot by Amy. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Go ahead. I'm on board. The police are like, we need your help to catch Amy. Maybe you can, like, next time she emails you, you maybe you can contact her and ask her, like, some specific questions about Carrie's disappearance. And if she... And then we can kind of use that to build a case against her. And Liz is 100% on board. Finally, these police are helping her. Almost immediately, Liz contacts the police the next day with emails forwarded from Amy where she confesses to shooting Liz in the park. When the detectives ask Liz to press Amy for details again about Carrie's disappearance, two days later, Liz produces emails in which Amy confesses to stabbing Carrie several times and stuffing her into a body bag. Wow, Amy is really just letting it all out there for Liz. I know. She's just so open. They just, you know, I feel like I can I can talk to you about anything, Liz. Yes, exactly. Wow. Such a good <laughs> friend, Liz. <laughs> now, when Liz became upset because the detectives didn't act on the emails and didn't arrest Amy Flora, Detective Avis told her that's because they need to have details that only Carrie's murderer would know in order to arrest her. Well, don't you know, miraculously, Liz got those details from Amy. She's just like, hi, I sent her an email and I was like, can you please give me details that only the killer would know, please? And she's like, yeah, sure, Liz, anything for you. You're such a good pal. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) In the forwarded emails, detectives learned that Carrie was supposedly stabbed to death in her Ford Explorer. With the help of Omaha's police department, the detectives conduct a crime scene search of Carrie's vehicle, and they discover, once they remove the upholstery of her passenger seats, that the passenger seat padding is stained in blood, and that blood matches Carrie. Okay, that makes sense. The police brought Liz in and confront her with all the evidence they've compiled against her. She, of course, denies any involvement, even going so so far as to say she couldn't have been doing all this harassment. She doesn't even have internet at home, Eden. Oh, well, there's no other way to get internet than at home. Exactly. No things like libraries or cell phones. Exactly. What Liz didn't know is that while she was being interviewed, the police were executing a search warrant for her home, and they turned up some pretty incriminating evidence. One piece of that evidence was Carrie's camcorder. According to a video from the camcorder about two days prior to her disappearance, Carrie filmed a short video about how someone had vandalized her car. On December 22nd, 2016, police arrested Liz for the first degree murder of Carrie Farber, despite not having a body. As prosecutors prepped for the trial, Dave remembered that Liz had a tablet and that he actually still had it in his storage unit. So he turned it over to investigators who were able to recover some deleted photos from it. One of the photos showed a human foot that w- that bore a tattoo of the Chinese symbol for mother. It matched a tattoo that Carrie Farber also had on her foot. Ooh. So basically, while they didn't have a body, they had evidence that Liz was at least around Carrie to take a photo of her foot. Which is creepy. Which is just 
creepy, right? I think in one of the interviews I read, like the digital forensic investigator, Anthony Cabo was like, that literally meant to me that she was like with Carrie's dead body taking pictures of it. Yes. I'm like, oh, that's so gross. That's and where creepy. my mind went to. And yeah, Liz, you're you're you need more help than than Carrie did. I'm sorry, but it's true. Mm-hmm. With all this evidence against her, it shouldn't be surprising that Liz was sentenced to life in prison in 2017. To this day, she still maintains her innocence. She didn't she's innocent. She didn't harass anyone she didn't kill anyone carrie's real killer is out there somewhere it's not amy anymore it's not amy anymore (laughs) or maybe it is damn that amy i know such a criminal mastermind coincidentally when liz went to prison or was arrested by police i should say all of the harassment that dave and amy and nancy had been experiencing suddenly stopped oh that's a coincidence to end on a slightly more positive note, the lead investigators of this case, who I just think are awesome police officers doing a fantastic job for the citizens of Omaha and Council Bluff, Iowa, uh, Jim Dottie, Ryan Avis, and Anthony Cava, ended up setting up a scholarship in Carrie's name at her alma mater. They said that they wanted to create something positive to associate with her memory so that people didn't just think about Crazy Liz and all of the weird harassment. The 50,000 emails and everything else. The 50,000. Yeah. Yeah. So, Eden, that is the story of the disappearance of Carrie Farver. That was one hell of a fucking story. Wow. <laughs> I I needed something to distract me today, and that did it. That really did it because, wow. Holy crap. I know. I'm like, I, I mean... It's interesting to me that this story hasn't inspired some kind of based on a true story movie or something like that. Uh, it definitely seems like it could be on like Lifetime or something, honestly. I could see yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so my sources for this week's story were, of course, Wikipedia, Only in Your State, uh, DailyNebraskan.com, The Dodge Voice, ABCNews.com, this great book called the a tangled web by Leslie rule, who is actually Ann rules daughter. If you didn't I know. know who that is. Great, yeah. Great true crime writer. Her daughter's following in her footsteps. It was a great book and an episode of 2020. Awesome. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, you bet. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then I will get on with my story. Sweet, sweet. And we're back. I found a very strange news article from UPI.com. Okay. Hit me with it. Massachusetts bar accepting Monopoly money for two hours. What? Yeah. (laughs) A Massachusetts bar announced it will accept Monopoly money as currency for two hours as part of its bid to be included in a localized version of the game. Interesting. Ralph's Tavern in Worcester? Worcester. Worcester. There we go said customers who visited the business from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Wednesday can use Monopoly money to pay the $5 cover charge, and the play money will also be accepted for hot dogs, non-alcoholic jello shots, and tickets for a raffle. First of all, non-alcoholic jello shots, that's just jello in a fucking cup. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. (laughs) (laughs) The bar's owners said the state laws bar the business from accepting Monopoly money for alcoholic beverages, so legal tender will still be required for drinks during Wednesday's event. Ralph, which bills itself as the oldest tavern in Worcester, is campaigning to be included in a localized Worcester version of Monopoly, 
which is being produced by Top Trumps USA, the company licensed by Hasbro to produce localized Monopoly games. Mm, that's cool. I love some of those localized Monopoly games. They're very neat. Yeah, they are cool. Yeah, I really liked that article. I was just like, what? Because <laughs> I want to go to a bar that accepts Monopoly money. I mean, that sounds like a bar where I could really afford to have a great night out. Exactly. Yes. And I mean, I'm never going to play Monopoly again anyway, because it's the game that ruins friendships and families. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. If that board does not get thrown, you're not playing it, right? <laughs> Welcome to capitalism. Exactly. Alrighty. Tell me something spooky, Eden. <laughs> All right. My story for this week takes place in Hastings, Nebraska. Hastings is the county seat of Adams County. It has a population of 24,907 and an area of 14.77 square miles. Hastings seems like a cool place. It had the largest naval ammunition depot in the U.S. during World War II. And if you remember from last episode, we discussed how Kool-Aid was invented in Nebraska. Well, it was actually invented in Hastings by a guy named Edwin Perkins in 1927. Nice. I love the tie back to our other learning about Nebraska moments. And I mean, the naval thing is kind of a tie back to the other one too because again why do you have a navy and no Mm -hmm. water Mm -hmm. well people in hastings are apparently so proud of this sugar water that they host a kool-aid festival every august which means it's coming up soon so get ready to burst through some walls guys oh yeah (laughs) again there's a big railroad connection because hastings was founded at the intersection of the Burlington and Missouri River Railroad and the St. Joseph and Denver City Railroad. I'm pretty sure everyone who listens to the podcast should know about the Donner Party, right? We all know about the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully it's one of those big, grisly parts of American true crime history. Exactly. Well, they actually passed through this town, and in a pioneer cemetery in town, there's a grave marker with an inscription from Tamsin Donner's journal. There are a bunch of notable people from Hastings, but I didn't list them because I can't pretend to be excited about it since I really didn't know who any of them were this time (laughs) around. But they're mostly senators and athletes. Oh, boring public figures. Gotcha. Exactly. So there was one Playboy Playmate on that list from the 1960s, though. Again, too too early for me to care. (laughs) Exactly. So Hastings is also known for a fountain in town called Fisher Fountain, which is really pretty. It has kind of a weird story to it because it was built in 1932 as a temporary exhibit for the Adams County Fair, but it became pretty popular for the rainbow water jets that it featured. Uh, The weird thing that I mentioned is that it was renovated in 1982, but then someone decided it might be fun to blow it up with dynamite in 1984. What? Yeah. So then they built it again in 85 because the community response was so incredible and they raised $63,000 to rebuild it. But Okay, Hastings, you do you. (laughs) Exactly. But we aren't here to talk about exploding fountains, however fun they may be. We're here to talk about some hauntings. So without further ado, I bring you the story of Hastings College. Ooh, another spooky haunted college. I I like the haunted colleges. Yeah. Me too. Uh, So Hastings College was founded in 1882 by some people that said, hey, you know what this town needs? A Presbyterian college. (laughs) The school has been accredited since 1916. And now looking at this college, it's that style of architecture where you look at it and say, yes, this is very much a college. The buildings are nice, but it's very stereotypically a college. 
there that red brick with the gray roofs and the stone above the doors you definitely get that college vibe uh there are 40 buildings total on 109 acres of land so it's a sizable campus for sure the first building called mccormick hall was built in 1883 and is actually still being used today wow there are some newer buildings on campus, which were built in 2002, including the Osborne Family Sports Complex and the Flaherty Educational Center. The most recent building was the Jackson Dinsdale Art Center, which was added in 2016. McCormick Hall is on the National Registry of Historic Places and has been since 1975, while the historic core, quote unquote, of the campus was added to the registry in 2017. So before the construction of McCormick Hall, the school still accepted students, and they had their first class of 44 students taking courses out of the old post office in town, which they did for two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of weird. All right, kids, get ready ready to learn. Let's go to the post office. (laughs) I don't know how many students attend the school today, but I do know they had um, 1,190 undergrads in 2013, so it's pretty small. The campus does a lot with sports. The Broncos are the name of their teams, and men can compete in baseball, basketball, football, soccer, bowling, cross country, golf, tennis, track and field, and wrestling. But women can compete in basketball, bowling, cheerleading, cross country, dance, golf, soccer, softball, tennis, track and field, and volleyball. I do not know if some of these cross over and have both genders playing on one team or if it's completely segregated. I also found it weird that cheerleading was listed strictly under the women's sports because most college teams do have male cheerleaders too, but I don't know if that's a thing for this college or not. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the school is still a private Presbyterian college to this day, so that makes me feel like they probably are super into gender roles here and probably do not have co-ed sports or male cheerleaders because that would be gay and we need to pray the gay away. Praise Jesus or something. Absolutely. So on their list of famous people who graduated from this college, I did see a number of athletes, one astronaut, two authors, an NFL coach, politicians, and even the prime minister of South Korea. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. I thought, I mean, I don't know how South Korea works. Maybe it's just the American thing where you need to be born here to be in, you know, a seat of power like that. But Well, maybe they uh, got their degree. Maybe they were born in Korea and they got their degree overseas. That was another thought that I had too. So mm-hmm. it's possible. Who knows? I just thought it was so strange that the prime minister of South Korea went <laughs> to the school. So the school also seems like it has small class sizes. According to their website, the average class only has 13 students. I went to a community college and we had more students in our classes. Well, other than my intro to theater class where we probably had about that, but it was a horrible class anyways. And my teacher's last name was boring and she was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, They do have good-sized lists of majors and minors to choose from at this school, which is good, but the website says you have to pick a major, a minor, and then something called an IDEA minor. What? Yeah. IDEA, in this case, is an acronym, and it stands for Interdisciplinary Emphasis Area, and there are eight to choose from. I felt the need to list them because I've never heard of this in my life. So here goes. You can choose from Citizenship and Community, Being and Knowing, Creativity and Innovations, Sports and Society, Culture, Structure, and Power, Technology and Curiosity, Health and Well-Being, and finally, Built and Natural Environments. 
Okay. I, yeah, I really yep. don't know what that means. I even read the descriptions for some of them, and I still don't know what it means. <laughs> so after a little more digging on their website, I did find two things that were co-ed. Uh, cheerleading and dance. I guess they aren't who I thought they were, so I do apologize to you, Hastings University. I'm I'm very happy that you are a little bit more accepting than I thought. So this school also offers a lot in the way of extracurriculars. There are fraternities and sororities on campus. There's a ton of musical groups, like a really long list of musical groups, Uh, religious organizations, something to do with a food pantry and something that I wish had its own link because I want to know what it is, but it's just called love your melon. I want to know what that is too. (laughs) Right. I really want to know what that's all about because what did you just say? Yeah. mm, Melon loving sounds a little. Hmm. I mean, well, I just college is a time of experimentation, Eden. I guess I just think of someone drilling a hole into a watermelon and going for it. <laughs> Maybe that's the way they keep them uh, pure until marriage. There, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure that doesn't count as premarital sex. <laughs> exactly. Now, I guess I can tell you about some people who I guess either didn't love their melon or maybe they love their melon a little bit too much because they decided to stick around. In other words, here are some things that go bump in the night at Hastings College. Well, once I got to this point in my notes, I realized that there wasn't a whole lot, so I have a surprise for you. There will be two stories this week by me. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes, it is. But first, I'll tell you about the two spirits that haunt this place, which unfortunately only in your state failed me this week and was like, oh, a bunch of spirits are here, but these are the two most prevalent. And then they turned out to be the only two I could find. Uh, So first, we have a teacher who likes his job so much that he kind of sort of does it still. Uh, In the music hall, people have seen an orb that they say is an old music teacher. Uh, He's also been seen as a full-bodied apparition. He's said to turn the lights on and off in the building, and people can hear the sounds of a piano coming from the building on occasion as well. The other spirit that haunts the school is a woman by the name of Clara Altman, who was a professor of Spanish in the school since 1921, and I had to do some digging to find that information. And she was the first woman educator at the school to receive a doctorate. So she seemed pretty cool in life as well as in death because she likes to hang around the building, which is named after her, Altman Hall. And she's said to be a protective spirit. She watches over and keeps safe the students in that building. But that doesn't mean that she won't play a prank or two. She also seems to like to turn the lights on and off. She'll randomly knock on doors. And she also likes to turn off and on radios in the building. (laughs) Nice. I was so sad when only your state made this place out to sound like there were so many more ghosts. And then I nearly, I got nearly 1400 words into my story for only two. (laughs) So to make up for that, I did not, since I did not fully love my melon this week, here's your second story. But first I will do my sources. So for Hastings college, my sources were wikipedia.com, hastings.edu, nebraskahauntedhouses.com, hauntedplaces.org, Facebook.com, and onlyinyourstate.com. Ready for the second one? Hit me. All right. The second story that I want to tell you all about this week is about Wayne State College. I decided to go with a bit of a theme here. Wayne State College is in Wayne, Nebraska, which is the county seat of Wayne County, and it's pretty small. It has a population of 5,660 people and an area of 2.86 square miles. It was named after the county and was established in 1881 because of another theme that we have going on, the railroad. 
So this one, unlike its Presbyterian counterpart, is a public college and was established in 1810. It used to be a different school, though, called Nebraska Normal College and has changed names quite a few times. I've only recently heard the term normal college, and surprisingly enough, it was because of a Jeopardy question. Really? Yes. Are you aware what a normal college is? I'm not. Okay. So it's actually just a way of saying that a school, that it's a school for the training of teachers from what I could find online. Interesting. But the name just sounds kind of dumb to me, though. It's like, what kind of college are you? We're normal, I swear. Like, what? Nebraska Odd State College. Exactly. So Wayne State College offers 130 programs in four categories, arts and humanities, business and technology, education and counseling, and natural and social sciences. They also offer 13 NCAA Division II sports. And again, it must be something with Nebraska because the school produced a lot of politicians and athletes too, most of which I haven't really heard of. There were also a few authors, but a lot of those authors were also athletes or professors making Mm. books about food and dieting. Interesting. So the campus itself seems pretty large. I couldn't find dimensions for this one. And most of the pictures were aerial views of the campus. So looks wise from the building that I did get to see up close, it has that exact same look that I described with Hastings College, the red brick, some stone above the doorways and gray roofs. Gotcha. From their website, I was able to find that they have seven residence halls and 44% of their students live on campus, and there are about 3,000 undergrads here. Now, since I don't want to bore you with a ton of history about this place since it's my second story, I'm going to jump right into the hauntings since that's the part that left me wanting way more from my melon last (laughs) time. The main legend surrounding this school is that of a girl named Cora, or another source called her, get this, Clara, But it was only one source, so it probably is Cora. But yet another Clara haunting a place. Remember what I said last week about not naming someone Chris? Mm -hmm. Don't name your daughters Clara either. They will haunt a college. (laughs) Anyway, so Cora or Clara, depending on the source, haunts Neihart Hall and supposedly committed suicide in the basement of the school. I tried looking for both Cora and Clara on Google trying to find more to this story and maybe back it up with actual records, but I came up empty handed. It's kind of hard when there isn't a last name that we know of, but I searched like 10 different ways and still couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also said to be the ghost of a little girl haunting the school who was playing with a ball too close to an electrical socket. And that was, you know, it was open and she died by electrocution. Oh, So the weird thing about her is where she haunts, because it's completely creepy. There are these underground tunnels that apparently connect the dorm buildings to each other, and that's where she said to haunt. Uh, So I wonder if it's because of the weather those dorm buildings are there, but either way, that's fucking creepy. It's Yeah, it's really creepy. So now you might be saying, come on, these are obviously just stories that college kids tell each other to freak each other out. And I'm thinking you might be right on that one. I honestly came across no activity of any kind with what's said about these spirits. So I don't even know what they're supposed to do or how these hauntings manifest. What we do have is two creepy places in buildings where frisky students can possibly get a little bit of privacy, such as the basement and a tunnel that connects the dorms, which is perfect for sneaking into someone else's dorm room after hours. I also found out that the school does a haunted trail around Halloween, and I don't know if they go more into the detail of the legends there or not, but I have to book a trip to Nebraska to find that out. 
I will say now that although those are some great arguments for there being nothing supernatural afoot at this school, I do have a few stories from students that might make you think otherwise. Ooh, I love student stories, especially about like haunted colleges there because it's like so creepy. Me too. When we did the college in um, Vermont, mm-hmm. that was insane how many I was able to find. I was only able to find a few here, but they're still pretty good. Uh, in one of the residence halls uh, called Bowen Hall, I saw a comment, a comment from a girl who said her dorm room had a few issues of the spooky variety. She said their drawers would open on their own and both roommates knew that they had closed them prior. And that seemed to be very common occurrence in their room. Hmm. She also said there was a night where she was in her lofted bed and her LED remote fell off on its own. And that sounds normal enough, but then it dragged across the floor on its own. Uh, nope. Mm-mm. Yeah, exactly. She has also seen a shadowy figure of a man lurking in the hallway of that building. Mm-mm. Another commenter said their pendant necklace mysteriously flew off their neck during class one day. What the fuck? Yeah. And they also said that they felt someone like something like hands on their neck before it happened. And the only thing behind them was a wall. So no one could have been standing there. Oh, that's so. mm -mm. That's creepy. I'm wondering if it was like a religious pendant, too, because that would be even creepier. Mm -mm. Our last comment is about someone who lived in Pile Hall on the third floor and couldn't sleep around 3 a.m. or so, and went for a walk down the halls and into the lobby. They said that the temperature suddenly dropped like crazy, and suddenly they could see their breath in front of their face, and then they had this weird out-of-body experience where they suddenly were looking at themselves, and everything seemed to just be in slow motion. Weird. I've never heard of something like that before. Yeah, that's really creepy. Was it mushrooms? It was probably mushrooms. College kids get up to everything these days. (laughs) So what do you think, Nicole? I mean, that's like like significantly more ghosts for your uh, by 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 weight and your melon. Uh, I just can't even with the (laughs) I'm still like freaked out by the whole like hands on the neck for a second. Oh, yeah. Necklaces across the room. I'm like, "Mm -mm." exactly. Like, yeah, it's it's very creepy. And I don't like things dragging across the floor on their own. No, thank you. No, that's like, mm-mm. yeah, I don't think I would uh, go to school here, but I'd love no. to hear more stories from people who did. <laughs> exactly. Me too. I was hoping for a nice long list like I had in Vermont, but I didn't get that lucky. But there were some good ones, at least. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, WCS.edu, NebraskaHauntedHouses.com, HauntedPlaces.org, and GhostsOfAmerica.com. Nice. Well, I think that brings our episode for Nebraska part two to just about its end. If you like the stories you heard today, please take a moment to rate and review our little show on whatever particular podcast platform you love to use. It really helps us get the show out to more listeners or more prospective listeners, and we'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Also tell your friends because word of mouth is also a great source to get our podcast out there. If you want to contact us directly instead of just leaving a review, you can do that via email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also visit us on our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. 
We also like to entertain ourselves when we're not writing creepy stories by posting silly memes and articles we find interesting on our social media sites. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on creeping creepin on. on.